Good morning, everyone. The Bible reading this morning is Jonah 1, verses 1 to 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, when they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And this, the men great, at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we start a new series looking at the story of Jonah. Uh, and we're going to go back to the original story, the one we find in the Bible in the Old Testament. Jonah, the story of Jonah, a man swallowed by a whale, miraculously surviving and then vomited back out, is not an unknown story. You may not even be much of a church god. Maybe you've never been to church before, but you probably have heard of the vague events of Jonah. In fact, popular culture was um, is, is consumed with Jonah and, and the story because apart from anything else, it's just a great story to tell kids in, uh, in art. Many artists have had a crack at it. I'm no art historian, but here's a couple of examples of it. Uh, this first one, well, look, like I said, I'm not an art historian, so I'm not going to comment on the actual artwork, but it's pretty good. I couldn't do something like that. Uh, here's, here's another example. I love this, this picture, actually, because it captures the violence of the event. I mean, to be vomited out of a fish must have been a fairly violent experience and this third one i've included this third example uh, because i just think it's so 
It's so on point for the North Shore, you know. He uh, gets vomited out, but nothing will stop him missing his 11 a.m. meeting. I <laughs> don't know where he's off to dressed in a suit. Nonetheless, when we look at all three of those examples of Jonah, what we see uh, is a fish and a man. And that's really how we understand the story of Jonah, that miraculous, extraordinary, almost unbelievable event. But as we look at the Bible's account of the story of Jonah, what I want us to see is that the Bible has a richer, more intricate and surprising message at the heart of this story. We're going to spend four weeks on it. There's four chapters because in every chapter there's so much detail. From the very first verse of this book, we get introduced to Jonah. And so the book starts with these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And in that introduction, just in that first verse, we are introduced to the man who this book is named after. But there's lots of little hints in there. That phrase, the word of the Lord. Now, if you're a regular reader of the Old Testament, if you were a Hebrew, for example, and you were reading Jonah, you knew that phrase very well. It came to very special people in Israelite history. Not everyone had the word of the Lord come to them. Uh, it was a very, very select list of people. They were the prophets, people like Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And what's extraordinary about this story is that Jonah, this character, is in that great kind of list, that hero list of Old Testament characters. Jonah had the word of the Lord come to him. And his name, we're, in, we're given in a sense what is in effect his surname, so to speak, son of Amittai, to identify Jonah, because we've actually heard about Jonah before in the Old Testament. Again, if you, were, if you were reading the Old Testament, you knew it well and knew the events of Israel well, you would know that Jonah has already appeared earlier in the book of Kings. And in that book, Jonah is a prophet who prophesied something and it came true. It came true. And so he has a lot of credibility. I remember when I was in my second year of university, it was a long time ago, it was 1999, before Y2K and all those kind of things, and the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup was on, got to the semi-finals, and New Zealand was playing France. I'd read an, I'd read an article by Peter Fitzsimons, uh, who he hazarded that perhaps New Zealand would get beaten by France. Now, of course, this was, this was unbelievable. France was uh, this erratic team. At times, they played brilliantly, but they hadn't had a great tournament, and New Zealand was New Zealand. They were brilliant. They were geniuses on the field. There's just no way that France would beat New Zealand. My friends and I are sitting around uh, having a drink at the pub the night before the game and I picked up what Peter Fitzsimons had said and I prophesied that France would beat New Zealand. Now, if you know your Rugby World Cup history, you'll know that that is exactly what happened. So the next day, we watch the game, France beats New Zealand. Everyone looks at me like, with awe in their eyes, I couldn't believe it, I'd got this right. And people, for weeks after, were asking me their, their picks for the footy comp that we were part of. I, of course, should have quit while I was ahead. Uh, I came second last in the footy comp because I really wasn't a prophet. I just fluked it. But Jonah is very different. The word of the Lord really did come to him. And he really did make an extraordinary prophecy, which came true, which came true. So Jonah has a great level of credibility as we meet him in this story. But Jonah changes so quickly, even in the first verses. In verses 2 and 3, the events continue. And so we read that the Lord says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa 
and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, one of the things that you start to realise as you read more and more Old Testament uh, narrative is that Old Testament writers include everything for a reason. They love telling stories and every detail is important. There's so many details just in that little section which unpack the real character of Jonah. The first is the reference to the presence of the Lord that appears a couple of times in those verses. That's a very unique phrase, again, in the Old Testament. One of the key places it arrives is in Genesis chapter 3, where you might remember the accounts of Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, having eaten the fruit, try to escape, flee from the presence of the Lord. And, even, and there, as in here, there's a level of absurdity that's included in that. The writer wants us to remember how ridiculous it is that you could possibly flee from the presence of the Lord. God who sees everything, as if you could run from his presence. But that's exactly what Jonah's trying to do. You see how his character is slowly shaping, changing from that initial introduction? And then in the story, the writer is at pains to point Jonah's movement down. He goes down to the ship, and then he goes down into the belly of the ship itself. Jonah goes down. And it's not just that he's moving down physically or even geographically down to Tarshish. The writer's point is that Jonah is also moving spiritually down from his high place that he's been at as he tries to run from the presence of the Lord. But finally, the thing that strikes us in this little section is that Jonah's a prophet and the Lord has said, arise and go. That's a common phrase. That's a common call on prophets to arise and go. But Jonah does the opposite. He rises and he flees. He rose to flee to Tarshish. That's not what prophets are meant to do. Prophets are meant to arise and go and do what God has asked them. But Jonah is of a completely different ilk. And what we actually come to realise about Jonah in this story is that Jonah is not your classic prophet. Jonah's a bit of a rebel, actually. Jonah goes his own way. He does his own thing. That's the picture of Jonah that we're encountering. Jonah is not like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel. Jonah does his own thing. There's a few questions. Why does Jonah do that? Uh, there's only hints of it at this point in the story, but maybe his name, son of Amittai, which means son of truth, is perhaps a hint. Maybe Jonah has a sense of self-righteousness about himself. He was, after all, the prophet who got it right, who did what the Lord said, and maybe he holds on to that now as a bit of a get-out-of-jail clause about other moments of obedience. I'm just hazarding a guess at this point. The story doesn't give us enough to understand his motivations yet. Nonetheless, Jonah is a rebel. But the story continues. It's a very fast-moving story. And so by verse 4, we come upon the great storm, the infamous storm that Jonah and the sailors and the bows caught, caught up in. And I want to reflect on two things. First, on Jonah and his responses in this moment. And then on the sailors and see what we might learn from that. Well, Jonah, he goes down into the boat and the storm strikes. It must have been an extraordinary storm because the sailors, these are very experienced men who are on boat. I mean, this is their job. They've been in great storms before, but they're terrified, we're told. So it must have been an extraordinary, extraordinary storm. And uh, yet Jonah is asleep. Now, the thing is, you don't sleep when you're anxious, do you? Do you ever lie awake in bed 
Why do you lie awake in bed? Because you're anxious about something. But Jonah's able to sleep. Such is his level of autonomy. <laughs> he doesn't care what other people think. He thinks, he believes that he's completely in control of the situation. And so he can kind of disappear into his own thoughts, into his own world. He can fall asleep in the midst of this storm. But the sailor captain will not let him do that. And he comes to Jonah. And in the sailor's captain's words to Jonah, the story starts to pivot. He wants to know why Jonah's in this boat. Who are you? And Jonah answers very confidently, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. There's a confidence about Jonah, but the story is starting to change because we know that that's not completely true, is it? He is a Hebrew and he knows the Lord, but he's not worshipping the Lord at this moment. He's running from the Lord. He's rebelling. He's doing his own thing. And by the end of this moment, what we find is Jonah, after having claimed his position and seeing the storm not, not ease, Throws him, offers to throw himself into the ocean. Now, we might think this is a heroic moment, but we actually get a sense of oh, despondency. Jonah's given up. He sees that he cannot run from God and that God is coming after him. And he's given up. And so he, he allows himself to be flung into the ocean. There's a very important lesson that the Bible is teaching us about God right here. And it is worth reflecting on. It's this, you cannot run from God. Jonah's story in Jonah chapter 1 is as simple as this at this point. You cannot run from God. It doesn't matter what, what your intentions are, what your motivations are. You cannot run from God when he calls you. The world is too small to run from God. And that's what Jonah's learning. It's probably worth us doing a little self-reflection at this point. To what extent are we like Jonah? To what extent are we like Jonah? You know, when I was a, um, a schoolboy, we used to have a term that we described certain of our peers. We called them 007s after James Bond, 007. And if you know James Bond, well, he's a misogynist, but he was the ultimate, ultimate autonomous character, wasn't he? Uh, James Bond could do anything. He, what was unique about James Bond was that he, he was intellectually the smartest person in the room he was physically the strongest person in the room he could always solve a problem he could kill someone to get out of a problem <laughs> he could charm someone to get out of a problem in other words James Bond was the person who controlled his destiny and a 007 was always the guys at our school who we looked at and thought they control their destiny they're good at everything that they touch they're liked by everyone. They're at the centre of the circle. They are the master of their kingdom, so to speak. And we like that idea, don't we? We liked, that's, that's our goal, that's our ambition, that we would be the master of our destiny, that we would be in charge, that we would be autonomous and free. Freedom, it's the catch cry of our generation. It's the it's the word of our culture. It's the thing that everyone's trying to sell you when they sell you their product. Freedom. I've got a great example of this. It's an ad that was run by Telstra for a no-contract phone plan. Uh, he, here it is for you to check out.
Switch to Telstra prepaid freedom and get free calls to Telstra mobiles, free texts and for a limited time get double data when you recharge $30. Freedom's calling, only on Australia's best mobile network. Well, you know, for some of us in our culture, being a rebel is good. <laughs> did, you, did you pick up the themes of autonomy, of breaking free, of being your own self? I mean, there's a few, there's a few issues with physics there. I'm not sure how, a, I'm not sure how a, a little fish can control a skateboard. But let's, 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 let's move beyond that and see the central message that's being cast there. Freedom, being in charge of your own destiny is the key. You being king, you being ruler, you deciding is most important. And of course we believe in a level of freedom, but we have to understand freedom in a much more nuanced way, I think. I think even in that advertisement, what they can't get around the fact is that for the goldfish to survive, the goldfish needs to remain in the goldfish bowl, needs to be in water. There are certain realities, there are certain boundaries to our freedom that are actually good for us. And the Bible's goal is to set for us a sense of those boundaries. If we live within them, we live with real freedom. Freedom that brings life, not death. Freedom that brings joy, not suffering. And when we run from God, when we assert ourselves as a rebel, as our own authority, as our own king, as the master of our own destiny, apart from God and his boundaries, his good, perfect, wonderful boundaries, what we actually find is that we end up in the drink, like Jonah. It doesn't end up well for us. You can't run from God, and you shouldn't want to run from God, is the message of Jonah chapter 1, because God's boundaries... God's understanding of freedom, his good design for your life is truly good. It's truly good. Now that's Jonah, but think about the sailors. They're the other group that I said I want us to reflect on. Consider them because at the start of this story, they are essentially what um, you know, a, a Bible writer would describe as a pagan. They didn't know the Lord, but they encountered Jonah, they encountered the storm, they encountered this moment of great suffering and hardship, this clarifying moment about who they are and what their power is and where their authority really is and how much they can control. And they come to this moment of realisation and they cry out to the Lord. Do you see what they say to the Lord? They cry out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die. Please, Lord, do not let us die. Now, what's really interesting about that phrase is that they use this word Lord, L-O-R-D. And the Old Testament writers are using a Hebrew word called Yahweh, Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. They could have just said, please, God, please, God, do not let us die, which had been a more generic idea of a deity or of a powerful being. But no, they use the Hebrew name for Lord, the personal name. You see, God gave that name to his people as a way to entreat them, to bring them into a personal relationship. You know the experience, don't you? You might know someone uh, at, in terms of a title or a position, but then when you meet them and they introduce themselves and they say, please call me Prash. It's like a, it's a welcome into a personal relationship. That's what God's doing when he gives his people his name. And so when these sailors who started off as unbelievers, as distant, as completely rebelling from God, call on him. What they're doing is they're drawing to God in a personal sense. They're saying, I want to know you personally. And here's the message, the second message of Jonah, chapter 1. Rather than running from God, God wants to know you personally. 
That's what he's actually asking. He wants to have a personal relationship with you, and he's offering that. He's opening himself up to that. Now, Jonah and the sailors, they're both important characters in the story. Jonah is obviously going to continue through the next three chapters of this book. But Jonah and the sailors are not the point of this book. This is not a book helping us to understand Jonah. It's not even actually a book helping to understand ourselves, although it does allow that. The primary purpose of this book is actually to introduce us to God again, to introduce us to God. See, this book is actually about God. And that's what we start to see at the end of this chapter. See, because once Jonah's thrown into the, into the ocean, a fish is sent by the Lord. See, if Jonah ends up in the ocean and he dies, he drowns, and that's the end of the story, what we might learn about God is that he's chaotic, that the world is out of control. But as he sends the fish at this preordained moment to swallow up Jonah, what we learn is that God is in control. The reason why you can't and you don't want to run from God is that he is actually in control. He is in control. That is so important for us to remember, isn't it, at this point in time, when the world feels extraordinarily chaotic. I open up the papers and there is a new crisis, whether it's in America, whether it's on our shores, whether it's in China, whether it has to do with a pandemic, the world feels out of control. But here is the testimony of God's word to you this morning. God remains in control. Now, there would have been a moment when Jonah was flailing around in the ocean and the waves were crashing over his head. And he thought, what is this world? Everything is out of control. And then the fish arrived and there was a clear statement that God is in control. See, God is in control. Jonah cannot run from God because God remains in control. But here's what's more important. The arrival of the fish who swallows up Jonah and protects him and protects him is a reminder that not just that God is in control, that he has the ability to achieve whatever he wants, but that God is running after the people who run from him. That God is actually running after the people who run from him. I don't know if you picked it up in that first reading which Kim read for us from Luke 15. There was this word that repeats a couple of times, this word rejoice. And Luke says that God rejoices when he finds sinners. God rejoices because at the heart of God's character and his desire and his plan is to find people who are lost, to run after rebels. God's whole purpose and his whole plan in the Bible is this, to come and find you. He's running after you. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the heart of the whole Bible, and most particularly the story of Jesus Christ, is God not forgetting that you're a rebel, but running after you, even in the midst of your rebellion. He will not let you go. The God who is in control loves you, and he's running after you. And there is a challenge there for us, isn't there? There's a challenge for us to let go of our autonomy and to allow God to swallow us up in the love that he shows us in Jesus Christ, who himself was swallowed up for death for us. Will you let God run after you? Will you let him rescue you? 
because that is what he is doing. That is what he's challenging you with this morning. What we're going to do now, one of the great ways that we can respond is by responding in confession of our sin, confessing that we are rebels, just like Jonah, that part of our heart often longs to run away from God. We can pray this prayer of confession. It's going to come up on the screen in a minute. I want to encourage you to pray it with me uh, if that's true, if you want to accept God's rescue. And then to find joy in the assurance that this is what brings joy to God in finding you. Now, the words are going to come up on the screen and we can pray them together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation. Amen. Now the extraordinary news of Jonah and of the Bible as a whole and particularly the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And those of us who turn to him will receive forgiveness. At the heart of this, we call this grace. How extraordinary. God's unmerited, wonderful mercy to you and I.